The beginnings of a journey through the Phrygian Gates, one of the most intriguing titles in the entire repertoire for the piano, chosen by its composer, the American John Adams. As his 60th birthday looms into view, John Adams, who's become to all intents and purposes America's composer laureate, will be my focus for this week. You could tell even from that brief glimpse that Phrygian Gates is a piece whose repetitive form and rhythm would seem to track its home to the minimalist school of composition, and, in a sense, it is written in 1977 and very much part of that even now controversial musical movement created by Philip Glass, Steve Reich, John Adams and others. But as with so many labels, minimalism is one that's proved tricky to remove. That over the last 30 years, Adams's music has evolved into many other, more complex things besides. John Adams will be joining me to offer his own perspective on his life, music and career. And I'll begin with another of the pieces from the 1970s that made his name, Shaker Loops. It shows us Adams striking out in a decidedly new direction of his own, but without junking his past. He grew up in New Hampshire, not far from the remains of a defunct Shaker colony. The Shakers were known for their ecstatic style of worship, and in this piece he drew together his thoughts of what Shaker ceremonies might have felt like, articulated through elements of the minimalist music in which he'd been immersed. He expresses the idea of shaking through modules or loops of repeated melodies from little fragments, a technique he says he borrowed from the East Coast composers like Steve Reich, who were using taped music as an element in their works. The first of the four movements of Shaker Loops, Shaking and Trembling, is rapturous and ebullient. Shaking and Trembling, the first of John Adams's Shaker Loops, performed there by the Orchestra of St. Luke's, conducted by the composer. Well, that composer's here with me now, John Adams. Thank you very much indeed for joining me on Composer of the Week. Broadly speaking, we're going to take a, a kind of chronological journey through your work, and I guess one of the crucial early works, the one that really put you on the map first of all, is Harmonium. Uh, this came shortly after you'd gone west, making an epic voyage in your trusty VW Beetle all the way from New England to California. Even in this early piece, what we're hearing is hardly the minimalism that we associate with, say, Steve Reich or Philip Glass. Well, when I got to California, I was in a, a state of uh, terrible confusion because I really wanted to be a composer. And I had the received knowledge that there were really only sort of two main currents to follow. One was the sort of post-serial Euro uh, style uh, represented by Boulez and Berrio, and for which I had absolutely no interest whatsoever. And the other was Cage and Chance 
and also very social way of going about making avant-garde music. So I kind of opted for Cage, and eventually I realized that this was a route that would be right for me because it involved things that I felt were absolutely sine qua nons for the musical experience, uh, some kind of harmonic organization, be it tonal or modal, a sense of pulsation, and the use of repetition to create large structures, all of which elements had been systematically atomized by Schoenberg and Webern and their followers. So my first pieces showed that influence, pieces like Shaker Loops and Harmonium, but you could already tell from the start that there was a more dramatic and expressive personality inside me that was struggling to break through and to find a way of making this technical syntax far more unpredictable and far more emotionally explosive. Well, that's absolutely what we're going to hear. Harmonium is in three movements, and you've given each of them fascinating titles. I was asked to write a piece for the San Francisco Symphony. It was a big deal. You know, for 10 years I'd been struggling in San Francisco as a, you know, a underground avant-garde artist. And then the new conductor, Edo de Vart, was a young Dutchman who had done a lot of avant-garde Dutch music. Even though he didn't really care for it, he felt it was a kind of civic responsibility. And uh, he wanted to bond with a local composer so to sort of, you know, find out what was going so he did this very provocative thing. He offered me a commission for $10,000, which was more money than I ever could have imagined at that time, and said, I want you to write a, a major work for orchestra. No, in fact, I want you to write a major work for orchestra and chorus. So I had this huge challenge in front of me, and so I eventually settled on two uh, very unusual poems, uh, poets, one being John Donne, and a, a very deeply elusive and mysterious poem, which is essentially about the different kinds of love, very much in the style of the Symposium by Plato. And then two poems by probably our greatest, or one of our greatest American poets, Emily Dickinson. Nights give way to a tranquil dawn at the end of Harmonium. Uh, John, until I started to prepare, and I have to admit I was a stranger to your piece called Christian Zeal and Activity, um, but I was very taken by it, not least because it shows the extent of your influence on musicians like David Byrne and Brian Eno. Uh, this piece involves a, a pre-recording of a radio preacher quoting the story of Jesus and the man with the withered hand. I mean, you, you edited this and then set it against an orchestral background. Actually, this piece was part of a triptych called American Standard, 
a rather lowbrow pun because American Standard's also the name of a brand of toilet. Um, I took three American Standard musical forms, the march, uh, the hymn tune, and the jazz ballad, and I didn't care for the outside pieces and didn't keep them, but the middle one, Christian Zeal and Activity, which was a title that I found in an old revivalist hymn book. Uh, the, the hymn book was broken down into different categories, such as salvation, penance. Then there was this great grouping called Christian Zeal and Activity. Now, this was a good 30 years before the rise of George Bush uh, governing the world through evangelical principles. So I must have been a little prescient there. What I did was I made this musical piece, which can be played by any group of, of instruments, and I suggest that whoever's playing it take some kind of pre-recorded material that has to do with the subject, but they're invited to make their own. So this particular one, the story of, well, it was basically a, a tape collage of an evangelical preacher giving a Sunday morning sermon, is just one of many possibilities. Christian Zeal and Activity, performed there by the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Edo de Watt. The name of the radio preacher isn't known. Always a pleasure to see the boss enjoying himself, such as when the chairman dances, Chairman Mao that is, as imagined here in this Foxtrot for Orchestra by my composer of the week, John Adams. Two things particularly excited me about John's music. One was that it always seemed to be moving forward in space. The other, that in almost all his best pieces, there's a mixture of ecstasy and sadness. 
What's well, so said, no less a figure than Sir Simon Rattle. And it strikes me that what we heard there in the chairman dances is a perfect example. An extraordinary fantasy from the third act of the opera, where in the middle of a state banquet, Madame Mao invites a huge portrait of her husband to come down from the wall and dance with her. John, your first opera, Nixon in China, attracted phenomenal media attention. Were you prepared for that brouhaha it stirred up in 1987? I suspected that it would be controversial because, uh, first of all, it was an opera about an American president and no one had ever composed an opera about a contemporary event, uh, let alone one about such high-profile characters as, as Mao and Nixon. And also, it was a minimalist opera, and minimalism was still very controversial at that time. What was it that lured you to this particular snapshot in the whole Nixon trajectory? The, the idea of writing this opera was Peter Sellers, my longtime collaborator and stage director. He had been reading about Peking opera and uh, its way of telling stories, and he'd also been reading Henry Kissinger's tome, The White House Years, and I think just suffering through that book had made Peter uh, gave him the idea of getting back at Kissinger <laughs> by creating a silent role. I, at first, was not too excited about the idea. But the more I thought about it and the more I realized that what this event was, this uh, earth-shattering event, I had grown up intensely aware of the collision between capitalism and communism, between placing a market value on everything and this notion of social welfare. Plus, they were wonderful characters. You know, Nixon and Mao themselves were both kind of self-made men, and each had immensely interesting wives. Pat Nixon, sort of sweet, stand-by-your-man, perfect Republican wife, and Madame Mao being this, this immense firebrand who, in the end, really became the power behind the throne. You paint uh, the First Lady, Pat Nixon, as a very sympathetic character, and you give her a, a ravishing aria in the second act. Yeah, Pat's a complex character. What did she have to sacrifice in order for this man to kick and claw and scratch his way to the top? She can be at times very melancholy and visionary. And this particular aria is sung during this long tour of Peking, on a snowy day in February where she visits a children's school, an acupuncture clinic, the gate of heavenly peace, and um, a pig farm. <laughs> and she has a soliloquy in which she looks back to the United States as if, um, well, there's a wonderful image in it. Let the face on the Statue of Liberty turn inland. And she views the country and has these homely scenes of the family sitting around the table, the businessman uh, tired at the end of his day, the unknown soldier in his tomb, all these archetypical American images which painters like Norman Rockwell and composers like Aaron Copeland have mythicized for so long. But um, in Alice's texts, there, there's a, a genuine feeling to them that's both poignant at times slightly whimsical, but ultimately deeply moving.
the First Lady, Pat Nixon's optimistic aria, This is Prophetic, from Act Two of John Adams's opera, Nixon in China. Hard on the heels of that operatic success came another work, similar maybe in terms of having poetic idiom at its heart, but very different in mood, a sombre, introspective setting of Walt Whitman's poem, The Wound Dresser, testament to the terrible afflictions of the men he tended in army hospitals during the American Civil War. John Adams says that The Wound Dresser has much in common with the settings of the Emily Dickinson poems he made in Harmonium, both of them representing a quintessentially American expression, plain, direct, and yet capable of immense depth of feeling, both for tragedy and ecstasy. The appeal of The Wound Dresser to Adams was that it evoked the too often unacknowledged intimate act of nursing, one of the noblest yet least celebrated of human endeavours. What Adams also responded to is the sense of duality in Whitman's poem, between the physical and the metaphysical, between the grim realities so vividly recounted in the text, and, on the other hand, the sense of transcendence of these bodily horrors confronted daily. The solo trumpet mirrors the emotional line traced by Whitman's words. The events Whitman recounts are more than a century distant, but while Adams was writing this piece, Alzheimer's disease was tightening its grip on his own father, who was being cared for by Adams's mother. I was plunged into an awareness, Adams says, not only of dying, but also of the person who cares for the dying. The bonding that takes place between the two is one of the most extraordinary human events that can happen. Straight and swift to my wounded I go Where they lie on the ground After the battle brought in Where their priceless blood Reddens the grass The grass The Wound Dresser, John Adams's setting of Walt Whitman's poem, carving in its granite words the bravery of a nurse in the field hospitals of the American Civil War. Uh, John, The Wound Dresser is a, an extraordinarily powerful work, showing the dark and serious side to your musical persona very forcibly. Uh, I'd like to turn now to what you call the trickster side. To take one mischievous example, you've described this next piece, Grand Pianola Music, as a smirking truant with a dirty face in need of a severe spanking. <laughs> Not many composers, I think, have ever described works quite like that. Um, it does seem to light a, a blue touch paper as far as your critics are concerned, this piece. I mean, what is it, do you think, about this trickster side of your musical nature that gets them reaching for the green ink? It is an aspect of my musical personality. I suppose I could say it falls in line with the other aspect of American life, be it Mark Twain or Groucho Marx or Hunter Thompson or even passages in Walt Whitman, a kind of a celebration of a healthy vulgarity. And I think it, in its humor and in its flashes of outrageous vulgarity, it expresses my feeling about what was wrong with 
serious contemporary music and what continues to be wrong with it, which is it's over time having lost touch with the pulse of life. You said that grand pianola music began with a, a dream. You were driving down Interstate 5. I think I first had this image at the Marlboro Music Festival watching Rudolf Serkin play the Beethoven Choral Fantasy while I was on LSD. <laughs> and the piano just finally transformed itself into a huge stretch limo, you know, the kind the that would carry a, a head of state or a mafioso <laughs> around. So it was just this outrageous image sort of out of our crumb uh, of uh, two of these stretch limos playing a strange mixture of B-flat, E-flat, and A-flat uh, arpeggios, some of which... Uh, vaguely suggests the Hammerklavier Sonata and at other times uh, something by Liberace. And then I mix this image together with a, basically a wind band, you know, tubas and lots of brass and, and shrieking, yelping woodwinds. But as I said, much of the piece is very quiet. The first seven or eight minutes are, are very peaceful, and in the background there are three wordless sopranos, who I think of as the sirens, off in the distance trying to seduce the composer like as if he were Odysseus. We're going to hear the loud bits, the final part, which you've called On the Dominant Divide. <laughs> Explain. <laughs> well, the idea compositionally of this piece was to sort of use minimalist techniques, but I did the one thing that was absolutely forbidden in the minimalist canon, which was to go dominant tonic, you know, which is the most fundamental musical or harmonic gesture, but it's the gesture of closure. And the whole point of a minimalist piece is that you avoid closure. You never, ever skirt the dominant seventh resolution. And I just kept, I made a movement totally perverse in which it goes back and forth between five and one, five and one, five and one. And of course what happens is this very kind of garish melody that you think you've heard somewhere before. I've heard people argue over and over about where this melody came from and apparently Luciano Berrio came to a performance of it when it was done in New York and told a woman he was sitting with, um, oh yes, well that's a well-known Italian communist marching song. <laughs> <laughs> and other people said it was stolen from Scott Joplin, and, but it isn't, you know, it's mine. <laughs> Well, let's hear On the Dominant Divide, the finale of Grand Pianola Music, and you're conducting the London Sinfonietta. This is the podcast version of BBC Radio 3's Composer of the Week, your guide to a composer's life and work with Donald MacLeod.
The opening few bars there of The Death of Klinghoffer, John Adams's opera based on the hijacking of the cruise ship Achille Lauro by Palestinian terrorists in the Mediterranean in 1984. You'll perhaps remember that this action culminated in the murder of one of the passengers, the Jewish-American tourist Leon Klinghoffer. Those voices, a chorus of the exiled Palestinians, sing... My father's house was raised in 1948 when the Israelis passed over our street. Later comes the reiterated phrase, Israel laid all to waste. Clearly, those sentiments could do little other than cause a furore, despite Adams's claims that the work advocated compassion and toleration, and at the time of the premiere of Klinghoffer in 1991, the first Gulf War had just ended. The opera polarised opinion and generated intense controversy. Accusations were hurled at the work, including the charge of moral tawdriness. Opera houses, which had contracted to stage it, backed away, and it seemed as if Klinghoffer might tumble into oblivion. Then the events of the 11th of September 2001 reopened the debate, and Adams found himself charged with being un-American, anti-Semitic, even anti-American. His principal assailant was an eminent musicologist, Richard Taruskin, who accused him in the New York Times of romanticising terrorists. I'll talk to Adams about the opera shortly. The work has a solemn atmosphere, a kind of a cross between classical Greek drama and the Bach passions, and at its centre comes the act of brutal violence when Klinghoffer, who's confined to a wheelchair, is shot by a Palestinian fanatic. John Adams's librettist, Alice Goodman, assigns to Klinghoffer an aria which gives voice to a dignified, righteous anger. But this tirade denouncing the terrorist's conduct doesn't do him any good with the angry young man who faces him. Klinghoffer's language mirrors the intensity of his anger and fear. I know my children in the promised land Learn to sleep on the ground Because of your shelly Old men at the wedding hall Get a knife in the back You laugh, you laugh You pour gasoline on the women passengers On the bus to Tel Aviv And burn them alive You don't give a shit, excuse me About your grandfather's heart His sheep and his goat the land he wore out. You don't give a shit. You just want to see people die. Sanford Silfen as Leon Klinghoffer there denouncing the terrorists who are about to kill him. John, in a nutshell, what was it that attracted you to this scenario? What did you want to express with it? Well, the story of the assassination of Leon Klinghoffer was, on the one hand, a very lamentably familiar terrorist event, the sort of thing that we're so used to reading about and seeing on television now we hardly blink. On another level, it seemed to be something that could have been torn out of the, a page of the Old Testament, that it was a scene of recrimination, of confrontation of very, very, very old hatreds between Palestinians and Jews, between Palestinians and Americans, and between the haves and the have-nots. And 
I felt that there was a strangely archetypical image here of this this man that got caught in the middle of it, and I didn't mean to propose him as a sacrificial lamb or a Christ figure, but there was a strange resonance between a crucifixion, but also in a slightly mundane and, and weirdly contemporary guise. The fallout from Klinghoffer, I mean, it's been described by Richard Taruskin as the notoriously controversial opera, has been exceptional by any standards. Leaving aside the sorts of difficulties that you've mentioned since, did you see this coming? The opera was written between 89 and 91. At that time, the the dissonances and the the conflict uh, between the Palestinians and the Israelis had already been going on for a long time. But it was still a very, very touchy subject, particularly in America, where the Palestinians were almost without exception portrayed on television and in the media as terrorists. I mean, there was very, very little explanation of their history. In many senses, they were actually denied the right to have a history whether consciously or unconsciously. And Alice Goodman, the librettist, and Peter Sellers, the stage director, and I wanted to create a work that didn't have a political axe to grind, but that focused on the tragedy of this event and also gave a voice to both sides. The problem is, of course, and I must say that I I stumbled into this. I, I suspected it would be controversial, but I had no idea how violent and vitriolic the reactions would be. And the problem for most people, especially in the United States, was that giving voice to the Palestinian cause, no matter how hard I also struggled to give equal voice to the Israeli cause, meant that I was tilting to the Palestinians. And there were, you know, over the following 15 years, there have been continuous complaints about this. Every time the work is performed, someone from the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles issues a press release condemning the work. One musicologist actually went through note by note comparing my setting of one of the arias to a Bach aria in the St. John Passion and pointing out that even whether I intended it or not, I was tilting towards the Palestinians by my setting and use of particular intervals and harmonies. So, you know, it's just simply an inflammatory work for many people. Uh, Other people are able to take it less judgmentally and particularly as a work of deep tragedy and they see the sublime element in it. But um, I don't know how long it will be before the controversy dies down. It may never do that in my lifetime. The chorus in Klinghoffer have a very important role, similar to the chorus in a Greek drama or in a a Bach passion, I guess. They provide a perspective on the action. We're going to hear the day chorus from Klinghoffer, which comes as an epilogue to the middle scene of the opera before Mrs. Klinghoffer learns of the death of her husband. What did you want the effect of this chorus to be? I think it's a, a cleansing. Alice Goodman had a really sublime idea that in the midst of this telling of this brutal and very upsetting event, to have opposites. There's a night chorus and a day chorus. There's 
an ocean chorus and a desert chorus. There's a chorus of Hagar and the angel, which in a sense has its own duality built into it. And this desert chorus, I felt musically the need to simply move away from this terrible tragedy and this great human grief to sort of hover at 30,000 feet and just look at the larger picture. And so the chorus sings in a very, it's almost a blithe, removed sense. There's a, there's a wonderful flow, a pulsation, and we move away as if the camera pans back from this event for a few minutes, and then we go back, and the captain tells Mrs. Klinghoffer that her husband has been murdered, and again, go deep into the pain and, uh, of, of the individual's suffering. But for a moment with this chorus, we're back, cameras far back, and we're seeing all of humanity as a more natural event. Day chorus from John Adams's opera The Death of Klinghoffer. Around this time, John Adams was developing a newfound enthusiasm for melody in his music, as if to compensate for years of neglecting the singing line. The violin concerto emerged, he says, as an almost implacably melodic piece, with the violin spinning one long phrase after another for nearly the full 35 minutes of the piece. Adams admits that the concerto presented him with a challenge. For many years, he'd been rather awed by the violin. But then he cracked what he calls the wonderful alchemical mystery of this string instrument. And the concerto is an expression of his sense of, if not mastery, at least confidence that came about from many years of struggling with it. He certainly doesn't give the soloist an easy ride. The violinist virtually never stops playing. But as further younger players take the piece on... Adams says he's noticed that they seem to have negotiated its nastier passages with very little difficulty.
John Adams's violin concerto in a live performance there given at the Barbican Hall in London in 2002. Leela Josefowitz was the soloist with the BBC Symphony Orchestra conducted by John Adams. John, you've been cropping up a fair bit as the conductor of your own music. Is that an involvement that arises out of desire or need? (laughs) Well, fortunately, these days it doesn't arise out of need. I'm very, very blessed in having many of the world's great conductors taking my music on and with great intensity. I just returned from Los Angeles where I heard Asapekka Salonen conduct one of my longest and most complex pieces, naive and sentimental music. The month before, Simon Rattle performed my new opera, Flowering Tree. But um, since I was a, a teenager, I've always enjoyed conducting, and there was a brief period in my early 20s when I thought I would become a conductor. So it is a fulfilling activity for me. I think it closes the creative circle. I start the work, I bring it to fruition, and then I perform it. But I've always enjoyed working with orchestras. We get along well. I've had a long relationship with the BBC Symphony that goes back to 2002. I have wonderful relations with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and it's a great pleasure to be able to do not only my own music, but the classics and often pieces by my contemporaries. We talked yesterday about the mischievous trickster side to your nature. I was very drawn to the book of alleged dances that you've written for the Kronos Quartet and recorded percussion. <laughs> Were the allegations serious? <laughs> oh, the, the term alleged, or as we say in the West, alleged, it's, just, it's a great term because, you know, you, it's used when you read a report of a crime as if, as if the press were giving a break to the supposed suspect, but in fact, you know, we know he's guilty. And uh, so I used it, obviously, in a witty way uh, for these string quartet dances, the idea being there are ten dances, uh, the steps to which have yet to be invented, so hence they're alleged dances. Well, let's dip into this book of alleged dances now with Abanera. Habanera from John Adams's Book of Alleged Dances, played there with a little help from a pre-recorded percussion track by the Kronos Quartet. In the gloriously eclectic brain that's to be found between the ears of John Adams, associations are often made that would escape a less creative imagination. 
Schoenberg and wacky American cartoons of the 1950s, for instance. Adams's Chamber Symphony, whose very title pays homage to Schoenberg, began to take shape while Adams's young son was watching TV in the next room. The hyperactive scores of 50s cartoons became entangled with Schoenberg's music, as in the final Hell for Leather movement, which evokes the never-ending chases of that Looney Tunes classic, Roadrunner. Roadrunner, the unhinged helter-skelter last movement of John Adams's Chamber Symphony. John, I don't hear many traces of minimalism in that work. I mean, by this stage in your composing career, I think any qualified practitioner would probably have declared you free of the more <laughs> obvious symptoms. Well, I was tremendously influenced, not just by minimalism, but by the sense of pulsation that is so evident in American music, whether it's in jazz or rock or in all kinds of pop music. And I think it does set us apart from the European styles and traditions, particularly of contemporary music. Starting with The Death of Klinghoffer, which I wrote in the, in the early 90s, I felt that the more innocent harmonic and tonal palettes of minimalism simply could not do for a work that had such darkness and such violence and such psychological shadings as the story of Leon Klinghoffer's death. So my palette expanded radically to include moments of really gnashing dissonance and shocking rhythmic changes. I followed that with this very upbeat but rather zany piece, uh, The Chamber Symphony, which is on the one hand a tip of the hat to a very manic piece by Arnold Schoenberg, written in, I believe, around 1910 or so, but also an acknowledgement of the pervasive influence of American cartoon music on our musical culture. And I continued on with this rather chromatic style of writing halfway through the next piece, which was the Violin Concerto. And in the midst of the Violin Concerto, I think I felt that I had gone as far as I could go and the music was in danger of no longer being John Adams, that it was going somewhere off that, that wasn't... It was going into a territory that didn't interest me. So you can hear right in the middle of the violin concerto a, a sudden very sharp turn, and I went back to a clearer image of tonality and a more controlled harmonic environment in the middle of the violin concerto. In 1995, you wrote a piece which celebrates another very different past master, Nicholas Slanimsky. He's a man I value as a witty, truly original writer on music and musicians, um, and I think you knew him. 
I did know Nicholas Slonimsky. He was one of the most extraordinary figures in the history of music. He was a man born in Tsarist Russia. He was a polymath. He could speak about 10 languages, probably had an IQ up in the high 200s, had an eidetic memory, could remember everything, uh, was a famous historian of music, a conductor. And in his very late years, he lived to be over 100 years old, he ended up living in Santa Monica, California, partly uh, supported by the kindness and generosity of all people, Frank Zappa. And Slonimsky was important to me because sometime in the 50s or 40s, he had written a book called, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it now, something like A Lexicon of Scales and Chords. And in this, he had taken all the possible permutations of splitting the octaves or even two octaves into symmetrical forms. And it produced, if you immersed yourself in the possibilities of these, it produced a a striking harmonic world that people had started to go down in the era of Scriabin and early Stravinsky. And then for some reason... The German influence, the Schoenbergs and Hindemiths took over, and it was abandoned. Interestingly enough, John Coltrane found this book and started uh, learning these scale patterns on the saxophone. So I was looking for a way to break out of the sort of darker harmonic world that I was in with Klinghoffer, and I began experimenting with these scales that Slonimsky had organized, and the result was uh, several works one of which I named in honor of him, an orchestral work of about 12 minutes length called Slonimsky's Earbox. Slonimsky's Earbox by John Adams, his tribute to the man who described himself in the brilliant Baker's Biographical Dictionary of Musicians, which he edited as the legendary Russian-born American musicologist of manifold endeavours, a self-described failed wunderkind. In his quest for trivial but not readily accessible information, he blundered into the muddy field of musical lexicography. And thank goodness he did, say all of us. The entire page-long entry is well worth reading. Nicholas Slonimsky died at the age of 101 in 1995. John, we're going to hear next Century Rolls, the piano concerto you were asked to write in 1997 for Emmanuel Axe. This piece seems to embrace your more recent style, while it also refers to the rhythmic mechanism of some of the more overtly minimalist music. Is that right, would you say? Century Rolls was actually a difficult piece to write. I accepted the commission because it was from Emmanuel Axe, a person that I just dearly loved and couldn't say no to. But when I sat down to write it, I realized I didn't have an idea. 
And I usually don't accept commissions because I need to have the idea first and then I look around for somebody to commission it. So I struggled a lot for this piece, and I was saved by um, listening to piano roll music and realizing that when music was played on the piano roll back in the teens and 20s, whether it was by Gershwin or by Rachmaninoff or Paderewski, it had a, a unique sound to it, a timbre that was very bright and uh, almost as if it was controlled by a computer. And since I do love computers and I love music, um, I love to experiment with machines, I use that as a kind of a, a conceit. Uh, what would it be like if there were a piano concerto that had the sound of being played by not a living pianist but by a, a, a pianola? So that generated the ideas for the outside movements of the piece. I also wanted to write a, a piece that was somewhat in the mode of the what I call the, the great American urban piano concerto, of, of which <laughs> the examples, the obvious examples are the Gershwin Rap, Rhapsody yeah. in Blue and Concerto in F. Also the marvelous, much lesser known uh, concerto by Aaron Copland, written in 1925 when he was very young. So my piece does have echoes or resonances uh, of jazz in it and uh, of that sort of urban sort of New York concerto uh, uh, sound. It turns out to be an extremely difficult piece to play. I've heard... You sound surprised by that. Well, I am because it, it doesn't look hard on paper, but it's getting all the rhythmic exactness between the piano part and the orchestra is, is fiendishly difficult. And actually... Sometimes the hall itself can defeat it. I mean, I've done it in the Concertabau where the very rich, wet resonances there are almost defeated. And I know when Simon Rattle and Emanuel Axe did it in Berlin, they needed five rehearsals to, to put it together. So it's a difficult piece. Emanuel Axe has, has described his role <laughs> in the concerto as, as part of a mosaic. Well... He has described it in many ways. <laughs> uh, I described him going to the very first premiere in Cleveland in 1995 as looking like a man who was on his way to his own execution. <laughs> but he was very frightened, had never done anything like this the first time he did it. But uh, within a year or so, he was playing it with all the authority and, and enjoyment that, that he plays a Mozart concerto. And to this day, he still performs it, you know. 12 years later, which is an immense pleasure for me. He's, um, as you say, described this concerto in a number of ways, one of which is a picture of a romantic concerto. Thank you. 
Emmanuel Axe suggests that from his experience, that concerto programs extremely well with Bruckner, a 19th century minimalist, if ever there was one. I immediately began searching my mind for an image, either verbal or pictorial, that could summon up the feelings of being an emigrant to the Pacific coast, as I am, and as are so many who've made the journey here, both physically and spiritually. That's how the composer John Adams described the way he began Dharma at Big Sur, written to celebrate the opening of the new Frank Geary-designed Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles. In this inaugural piece, Adams wanted to express the moment when one reached the edge of the continental landmass, which, on the Californian coast, is no gentle yielding to the ocean, but a sudden violent drop, as from the dizzying heights of Big Sur, the stretch of coast featured in so many movies between Santa Cruz and Santa Barbara. A crucial point in the development of the piece was when Adams heard the unique playing style of Tracy Silverman on his six-string electric violin and thought that in almost all cultures other than the European classical one, the real meaning of the music is in between the notes, the slide, the blue note. Silverman's playing reminded Adams of great jazz and rock players, of traditional Pakistani singers and of the prose of Jack Kerouac, who was very much influenced by jazz. Dharma at Big Sur is in two parts. We're going to hear the first, A New Day, which is a moody and intensely lyrical homage to the West Coast composer Lou Harrison, who'd been both a friend and inspiration to Adams. A New Day, the opening movement of Dharma at Big Sur. John, it must have been quite an honour to compose for the opening of what was to prove to be one of the world's most striking new concert halls. Disney Hall in Los Angeles is possibly my favourite place in the world to hear a concert. It's partly the, the way in which the audience is arranged around the orchestra it's the sound, it's the feeling of this magnificently designed building. And then, of course, the whole ambiance of musical life in Los Angeles with an immensely curious local audience who will pack Disney uh, to hear a concert of new music. However, with that said, I don't want to say that the premiere of the Dharma Big Sur was a grand success. It was a fiasco. It wasn't a catastrophe, but it was, it was, it was disturbing. <laughs> With a lot of people coming up with slightly pained faces, shaking my hands and searching for something nice to say. <laughs> that recording we just heard comes from a recent CD of yours in which you've written an essay called East Coast, West Coast, some musical autobiography. The music we just heard was the West Coast installment. Uh, but something we haven't talked about yet is your upbringing in New Hampshire on the eastern seaboard, where... It sounds as though you received a, a pretty thorough musical education. 
Well, I grew up in a very small town of about 300 people, and I had the good fortune that both of my parents were amateur musicians. My father played the clarinet and the saxophone and had played in swing bands in the 30s, and my mother was undoubtedly the greater musical talent, but she had had no training at all. She played the piano by ear and sang in local theater productions. But they were attuned enough to understand that they had you know, somebody who was more than just the usually musically interested kid, and they took good care of me. You know, when they saw that I was interested in writing music, they managed to find a person who could teach me some rudimentary theory, and then when I was old enough, they began driving me to Boston for uh, music lessons. So uh, I had a rich fantasy life as a kid. I delivered the newspaper to all the people in the village, and each time I went out on this paper route, which lasted about 40 minutes... I would compose a complete piece in my head. This is about the age of 12 or 13. And I kept a long log of all these pieces, all of which were 40 minutes long. So that was the beginning of my imaginative life as a composer. You're a great man for titles, and it's a disappointment to me that we couldn't fit in Gnarly Buttons or Lollapalooza. But we are going to hear My Father Knew Charles Ives, so I have to ask, did he? My father didn't really know Charles Ives, but given... A few miles and a few years, he could have because he was a very similar person. He was a very self-deprecating, wry Yankee. He didn't like to travel. He was a businessman whose heart wasn't really in his business, who really wanted to paint and play the clarinet. And he was a a person who liked to read and introduced me to uh, philosophy and particularly to the works of Thoreau. So I made this fictive title... A friend humorously referred to this piece as three places in New England, only a little further north. (laughs) Of course, referring to the Charles Ives piece, three places in New England. And there are three locations in my piece, the last being a mountain, the second being the the lake where my parents met and fell in love, and the first is named Concord. Um, And that's the town I grew up in. And of course, there's an Ivesian pun here because Ives wrote a, a Concord sonata which is, um, of course, referring to the writers who gathered in the area of Concord, Massachusetts. And mine is about 100 miles to the north, Concord, New Hampshire. Concord, the first movement of My Father Knew Charles Ives, composed in 2003 by John Adams. We're going to end with what must have been a daunting challenge, a commission to commemorate the events which changed the world on September the 11th, 2001. You only had six months to write this piece. I 
had no intentions of writing a piece about September 11th. It seemed to me to be actually in very bad taste. Uh, but I received a phone call from the New York Philharmonic saying, we feel that we should commemorate it and would like to ask you to write a piece. Uh, it was very, very difficult to find a way to write this piece because I felt emotionally exploiting the feelings of the audience. Fortunately, I asked myself, how would Charles Ives have approached this? Because I thought Ives was a composer of great integrity and sensitivity. And I thought of the piece, The Unanswered Question, which became the guardian angel for this piece. After spending almost two months daily surfing the Internet, looking for some little clue of what this piece would be about, I settled on little fragments that were said by survivors. They might have appeared on a hand-scrawled sign, a missing person sign posted in the area around Ground Zero, or they might have been in a little article in the New York Times. Um, I mean, they're very alarming little four or five word phrases. Some of them are very touching. So I put them all together in a sort of vast collage, some of which is electronic, some of which surrounds the audience in 40 small loudspeakers mixed with the sound of the city, traffic. You can hear sirens in the distance, people talking, laughing. My family, my son, my wife, my daughter, and myself reading very quietly some of the names of the people uh, who had died. And a children's chorus and an adult chorus uh, singing these phrases, all of which is set in a piece that, although it's 25 minutes long, most of which is extremely quiet and introverted. I really wanted to create something that I eventually called a, a memory space, just a place where you could go to be alone with your thoughts that didn't try to manipulate them, that didn't try to cash in on the violence or the shock value of the event, but that simply focused on the fact that people can suddenly come home at night and discover a loved one is gone. And in that sense, hopefully this work uh, transcends its immediate topic, which is 9-11, and moves to a plane of a larger human experience. John Adams, thank you very much. Thank you. Here is John Adams's response to the events of 9-11 on the transmigration of souls. Lauren Marzell conducts the New York Choral Artists, the Brooklyn Youth Chorus, and the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. On the transmigration of souls, the work John Adams created to commemorate the events of September the 11th, 2001.